Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Okay, my God, probably, definitely not Sam McConkey. No, for all Sam. You, yeah, you, yeah. you went to a certain place. He yeah, was. You went to a different place. Yeah, like, exactly. So if you were the Stranglers, he was Sex Pistols. I'm going to thank you for the uh, various impersonations. My friend said, You've made it, man. you made it. <laughs> they were very funny. What was but, it? You're not going but, on a summer no. holiday. Remember that one, Mario? Yeah, you did you're with, not with, uh, going yeah. on a summer holiday. <laughs> yeah, they were the pandemics. Yeah, Louis was there. You guys are amazing, <laughs> Luke and Sam McConkey. <laughs> you harmonise so well together, guys. <laughs> Professor Luke O'Neill was a very well-known scientist before the COVID pandemic occurred, but his profile pretty much blew up. Uh, during the pandemic and he took on a kind of a celebrity status such was the demand for his expertise on radio television print and podcasts he even at one time became a very popular gift grub character and why wouldn't he says you with this kind of down to earth amiable persona and you know the data is telling us that he was extremely popular of course and also he used to say you see of course all the time yeah you see you see as if we knew what he was talking about and he sort of lulled us in there and um, that's the way he sort of spoke and um, he sort of had a very reassuring and um, professorial um, kind of uh, the kind of professor who'd be your buddy as well in college kind of feel to him and we caught up for a great chat just before Christmas and talked about all sorts of topics like his love of music including his recent trip to Vegas to watch U2's first show in the sphere, how he felt about his near-celebrity status during COVID, and how conscious he was of becoming maybe overexposed. But I also throw in a few of my trademark talk-to-me-like-I'm-a-two-year-old questions at Luke, which I think you'll enjoy. There's loads coming up in this one, folks. And after a while, I, I began to quote one of my favourite Travelling Wilburys songs, Overexposed, Commercialised. Yeah. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah Overexposed, Commercialised. <laughs> yeah, that was in my Handle mind. Me with care. Yeah, and because the trouble, the, the worst thing for me would have been, there's that guy again and they don't listen. The whole reason is to commu- is to get the information out, you know. So that was a really important thing to remember if you overdo it. <laughs> when somebody says, follow the science, and science is lobbied, incentivized, or just sheer given money by the most powerful corporations in the world could you not be forgiven for going I'm following the thing that's being paid for by lobby groups with loads of cash of course you can yeah absolutely assuage my fears my favourite movie is Paul it's got Simon Pegg and it's about this alien called Paul and he goes bend over boys probing time (laughs) that's the one thing we think of there has to be life somewhere else in the cosmos because life is simply a bag of chemicals All of that coming up in just a few minutes' time. And just to mention that Luke's two recent books are great and on shelves now. To Boldly Go Where No Book Has Gone Before is one, and a children's book called Show Me the Science. But first, comedy. Well, we could only go one place, and that was to the voicemails on the Mario Rosenstock show to see what, if any, mails were coming in for Professor Luke O'Neill. Hi, you've reached the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Please leave a message. Luke, Professor Tony Holohan here. Uh, great to hear you're on the podcast today. Uh, just uh, marking your card here. You wouldn't want to mention anything about the, um, <clears throat> you know, yourself. Also, the amount of uh, that we, uh, you know, that we put in. Uh, I don't think that needs to be mentioned. Are are those um, those figures that I uh, that I told you about? <clears throat> anyway, have a great time. Look forward to hearing you. Yeah, um, Professor, it's it's Bono. Uh, great to see you at the Sphere in Vegas recently. Wow, what a buzz. 
by the way, uh, <clears throat> thanks for those investment tips. Yeah, a couple of years back, I think I just made my second bill. Slapping down them dollar bills. 100! Oh, yeah. Thanks, Luke. Hi there, Luke. It's Pat Kenny here, your old friend, um, hoping to discuss the subject of sex pheromones on my show tomorrow on News Talk. My GP said I seem to be excreting a superfluity of same-sex pheromone at the moment, which apparently is irresistible to the fair sex. Still got it. Let's get the band back together because I'm ready to stink up Marconi House. That's it. Bye for now. Bye, 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 bye. <laughs> so let's not keep waiting. Uh, let's not keep pat waiting any longer. As I mentioned, Luke O'Neill became a regular fixture of my gift grub sketches on Today FM during COVID. And it turns out he'd been listening all along. <laughs> so come here, a lot of people are going to expect that we'll talk about science and we will talk a bit about science. Great. And even at some stage um, later in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in our conversation, I'll, I'll probably do a kind of a checklist with you about yeah. COVID. Yes. Because people don't want really... To, to really hear a pod, another podcast about COVID. Least of all me. Right. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe you, you talking about, well, probably, definitely not Sam McConkey. No, for all Sam. You, yeah, you, yeah. you went to a certain place. He you was... You went to a different place. Yeah, like, exactly. So if he was, yeah. if you were the Stranglers, he was sex pistols. I'm going to thank you for the uh, various impersonations. My friend said, you've made it, man. You've made it. <laughs> they were very funny. They were great. Yeah, well, I always, you know, I... What was I, it? You're not going well, on a summer no. holiday. Remember that one, Mark? Yeah, you did. you're we, not yeah. going <laughs> on a summer holiday. <laughs> Hula, yeah. yeah, they were the pandemics. <laughs> the pandemics, that's right. Yeah, yeah the, the, the group was called the pandemics. Yeah, it was great. As oh, NFIT4 and pandemics. Yeah. And Louis was there. You guys are amazing. <laughs> Luke and Sam McConkey, <laughs> you harmonise so well together, guys. <laughs> and the pandemics you're not going on a summer, summer holiday. holiday yeah I remember yeah. that one and, and said that yeah. and your, your Christy Moore song God what was oh the, the oh you're, 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 you're Ryan McConkey but wonky I think was, was the trick Jesus was it was uh, oh, co- co- oh sorry Cocoon Cocoon oh, Varna or, co- or Cocoon something like that yeah I was listening to Varna Cocoon Varna oh, oh yeah that's Cocoon Varna that's right yeah. and um, Sam McConkey exactly. oh yeah yeah that was on that we did that on yeah, the TV yeah we did it was very good Sam McConkey yeah. oh yes so do you know the thing about this looking uh, doing impressions and everything right I had a lot and I wouldn't say this now because you always get tweets about stuff yeah. but, but I got loads of tweets about this lots and lots right and it was like um, people just sending me pictures yeah. of uh, you really uh, right and going because it looked like he separated at no, birth and that people say with the image <laughs> I kept on getting this and I went do I and then people started sending me pictures of me and you so they're saying I was, we were all looking Twins. like each other. Yeah, yeah, Twins. yeah. Well, like, again, it could have been worse. It could have been Sam McConkie. It could have been Sam McConkie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, whatever happened, that's the name of a film, surely. Whatever happened to, to Sam McConkie. I know. Yes, we should so listen, bring actually, him back. So we're going to introduce, first of all, is we're going to talk about music. Great. So am I right in saying that you went to the U2 and the Sphere? I did. Well, tell us all about that. I what did. I want to know is, how good is it? What is it? What's the Sphere? Yeah, and apparently you know Bono as well. I do. Yeah, well, my my younger son was in school with Eli Houston. They were big mates in school from mm. the age of ten, mm. and I'd meet Bono occasionally at the, at the parent-teacher thing. <laughs> That's the first time I met him, you know, and Ali. And then What's I got that to know like him. to meet Bono at a parent-teacher it's thing. Pretty strange. <laughs> do all the other parents go? Oh, here he goes again. Well, well, I do remember uh, we were getting waiting to see an English teacher, and he was ahead of me, and he saw the teacher first. And obviously, Eli wasn't doing great at his English essays. And I could see that he's laying into Bono. You need to do better, you know. <laughs> 
with your son and I, I was next then and mine, mine was doing okay and I said to him afterwards God that you dug into you <laughs> this kind of yeah. thing. it's like two dads yeah, to be yeah. honest it was yeah. like two dads yeah. talking about our kids and stuff you know mm. initially and then I realised he's big into science Bono, but does actually. he look like Bono when he was at school oh he does oh, so he it's does. Bono Bono it's Bono Bono for yeah. definitely and he's into science and we had lots of chats about science and how science will save the planet uh, he's a big fan of vaccines in Africa because it saves lives this kind of thing you know and very well informed I must say so he's very yeah. very impressive guy to talk to about science the sphere then uh, my son got me a ticket because he was going you see and I couldn't say no it was the opening night you know brilliant and it's just spectacular and I'm sitting there thinking this could be used to illustrate science or medicine because the graphics are so wonderful you right. know that was, that was going sadly Mario through my mind DNA yeah. could have stretched across the, the screen helix. here the whole helix could be before us and then the music and the, it was mind blowing to see this fantastic display of and what is it music it is actually a sphere let's start with yeah. that and you go in and there's a massive sort of a semicircular screen 300 feet high basically in a oh. tiny stage the band come on and all these graphics go flying it's a bit like um, are you surrounded are you enveloped by almost a yeah you're almost enveloped and then the sound is pristine so you think you're it's live music or whatever. so in a sense it can almost transport you into a different world it, it's hard to concentrate on the music because yeah. it's the whole is it visually senses. stunning yeah, all your senses are assaulted by the, oh. the visuals and the noise and everything, you know, and the atmosphere of that. And it was the opening night, you see. So there and was, the sound was great. And the sound was superb, yeah. And as a matter of interest, what kind of set did they do? Was it a best of? Octung Baby, you see. So they played all of Octung Baby. And then in the encore, they came on and did the hits and the place went ballistic. This is where the streets have no name and all the big hits, you know. And that was really great How, to see oh, that. good voice. That. Great, great voice. So yeah. he's in top form, it has to be said, you know. So they sounded great. They did indeed. Without Larry. Without Larry. Well, in the middle. <laughs> be giving them ideas. In the middle, they said, oh, we have our new drummer. I think his name is Vandenberg. He says then, and he says, there's only one Larry Mullen, he ah. said. And then he was brilliant on, on drums. So it was great you know, to see him there. And, it, and Bono said it was their first gig. That, that opening night was their first gig since 1977 without Larry. Oh, yeah. And not incredible. Right, all those yeah. years have gone yeah. by. So, so he was missed, but uh, but musically, it was still just as good. Yeah, yeah. And the sound was incredible, incredible. as you say. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, 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 how long was it about? It was a good two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. so a good show. You know, uh, the support act uh, was a DJ. Yeah. Some famous DJ I've yeah. never heard of. You know? yeah, yeah. And he was in a Trabant, which as you may remember, yeah. was on the cover. Tongue, yeah. And he was playing all this music of various kinds, you yeah. know, and the crowd were dancing around. And then, then they came on and the whole place went. And is there any magical ballistic. science behind the sphere that you. That I you think it's the it. highest resolution graph pixels you can ever imagine on a screen. Yeah. And it costs 2.2 billion to build, remember. And as I said then, you could build a hospital with that, Mark. You could build a children's hospital. Well, probably like not the children's hospital. No, 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 no. Spheres. Yeah, Exactly, yeah. But the cost of it's amazing. And yeah. I think a guy from um, Madison Square Garden called Dolan, he's behind it. And at the end, Bono thanks to everybody and he started by saying, Dolan, you're one mad effort. <laughs> <laughs> to build this Yeah, and of course that's a very Irish name. Very Irish name, exactly. And the best part, to be honest, sorry, he, an homage to Elvis. So he said, this place is effectively a cathedral to Elvis Presley. Mm. And all the graphics of Elvis then came up in, in Vegas. Really pristine images of, yes. of Elvis. And then Bono sang um, a couple of Elvis numbers as well, by the way. Mm. You know, which is great to hear too. So he paid his respects to, to the other artists. Yeah, right, so yeah. And then Sinatra as well, by the way. He did My Way. Yeah, he did the Sid Vicious version of My Way. Okay, which that was great. Da, da. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that was great. And then the because uh, Bono did um, got you under my skin with with blue eyes. Oh, that's right, he didn't he? Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, with so old he blue was eyes. a bit of a fan. You know, Wasn't so that amazing? That was some little duet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he would have. Um, I'm actually reading Sina- a biography by Sinatra at the moment as well. Very, very complicated character. And Bono was a complicated character. 
In his um, own way, I thought. Well, yeah. well, isn't, well I mean, he is. I yeah. Mean, I mean, he is. He, he, he arouses. Well, I've often talked about it. He's talked about it on my radio show. He arouses, I think, these, 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 these dual sort of emotions in Irish people. I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's a, a confection, if, if, if it's made up by people or if it's, if it's real. But um, there seems to be like what you might call a broad, you know, p- polarisation, love and hate. There is, yeah. And, but, but is there, do you think? I, I don't know what it is. Or is it just made up? There's something about human psychology, is there? You know, the tall poppy syndrome or knock the guy down kind of thing. It starts with that, I think, you know. He said and it he, himself years ago. He said, remember that famous expression, that famous expression he said, um, he said, uh, the difference between Ireland and America, he said, is a guy is driving down the road and he sees the big house on the hill. And in America, they go, someday I'm going to be that guy. And in Ireland, they look up at the house of the hill and they go, someday I'm going to get that. Okay. <laughs> it's a bit sad, it's isn't it? it? But it's, but, and there's some truth in it. Few, really, a little yeah. bit of truth yeah. in it. Yeah, I wonder why we're like that. It's a shame in a way. I predict... But apparently, 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 it's very similar in the UK. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. You know? it's so a, it's not just it's not just Ireland country yeah. syndrome. I predict he's the national treasure eventually, Bono, because I read his book, Surrender, and it's a really good account, very self-deprecating, mm-hmm. which is good. All he's done for all kinds of charities and foundations for a start is superb. Mm-hmm. And the music, right, it was brilliant. I mean, those songs, I think, will last forever, some of those yeah. U2 numbers. Yeah. And they go down great in America, remember, because it's full of passion and soul, and the Irish are suspicious of it. <laughs> you know, if, you, yeah. if you're a bit too bombastic yeah. and soulful maybe that's yeah. a negative you believe know. it or not I think he one of his greatest skills is actually underestimated and I think that he is incredibly self-aware and it's very difficult to uh, be a star and be sort of able to talk about yourself in a country like Ireland because yeah. you'd, you'd get shot down as Bono knows but he is actually able to talk about the concept of fame stardom Talking through your hole, yeah, um, you know, in a brilliantly um, clever way. I mean, I've I've always found him a a fascinating human being, and he he, he admits to all these things. He admits himself that he's talking through his hole sometimes. Sometimes this kind of thing, you know. Sometimes I hear him talk, and I'm absolutely mesmerised. He's extremely well read, extremely well informed and extremely curious. Very much so. And that's where the science comes in, remember. So the conversations I've had with him are around climate change, for instance. And he he really believes technology is the way out of that. And he had a phrase, he said to me recently, we can't deny India air conditioning, he said. Now, what he meant by that was economic development in America in the southern states needed air conditioning. (laughs) All the buildings had to be kept cool, you know. India will now build air conditioning units and may allow economic development there and that will create carbon, won't it? You know, So therefore you need some way to mitigate against carbon and technology might absorb all the carbon in some way. We won't, we won't, it's unlikely we'll get there through stop decreasing fossil fuel use at least in the next 10, 20 years because, because that's too difficult. Well, know? one of my favourite guests on this podcast because he's a reasonably regular guest as in more than once is uh, John Gibbons and the environmental yeah. um, journalist. And of course, John, and I'm sure you'd be well aware of this, but John, you know, posits this future that we're going to have where the, 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 the temperature rises. And very, very, very large countries like Pakistan and India are going to become inhab- uninhabitable in large areas. And of course, this is going to be not just a problem for them. This is going to be a problem for us because they are nuclear nations. And after a while, they're going to go, guys, we're not having it anymore. Yeah you're going to need to start helping us now. And we're going to go, yeah, stupid India, stupid Pakistan. They're going to go, no, 
we're nuked. Oh God, yeah, no, it's, it's a depressing prospect. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. I mean, that, 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 well, there's a bit that for me, mass movement of people will yeah. happen because of climate change. This is going to happen. There's no question. And it's, it's all happening be, already. Well, as you, know? you say, as you've said before, it's all going to be a fight for basic resources like yeah, water, exactly, and yeah. food. Yeah. Ireland, for example, can't um, can't sustain itself. We cannot sustain ourselves. If 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 we were cut out from the outside world, we couldn't feed ourselves. Believe yeah. it or not. Yeah, so it's it import no, food, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, right. Anyway, so this is science and this is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. But first of all, I want to ask you about your love of, of science and how you, uh, what what made you become a scientist rather than a rock star? Yes, well, that's, that's that, I'd rather be a rock star. Let's start with yeah. that. No, I, I went down the wrong road. No, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been asked this. I mean, I think, I think as ever, it's teachers, isn't it, right? Like, fantastic okay. school teachers. I was lucky. Where? In Presbury. Okay. I'm from Bray, County Wicklow. Okay. And I had a great chemistry teacher called Gutty, was his nickname. Mm. He was called Gutty because he used to gut things in practicals to show us the inner workings of worms. And we Frogs called him Gutty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. got a good nickname. Vivisect. Vivisect, exactly. Yeah. And then we had a great biology teacher. I'll never forget it when I was in fifth year. And at that age, your mind is now opening, you know. And what happens to you when you're 15, 16, 17 determines your life, I think, if you're lucky enough to follow your path, you know. And I was lucky enough to meet a fantastic biology teacher at the age of 15. And he opened up my eyes to the world of biology. And never forget it, I was sitting in this classroom one day and he just, he, on the blackboard, he draws out DNA. Tries to draw a double helix. I mean, tell me more about that. And I never forget it. Right, we did. Uh, uh, English was my other favourite subject, by the way. English and biology were my two top subjects. At the same time, we're asked to do an essay on Keats, the poet. And I thought, nah, everybody's written about Keats, and what have I got to bring to the table when it comes to writing about Keats's ode on a Grecian urn? I thought, now science is different because you're discovering new things and you're, you're kind of finding out new stuff all the time. And that seemed to be intriguing to me as well, the fact that you can discover new stuff. And then, of course, intellectually, it's very satisfying if you learn scientific, at least for me it was anyway, to learn scientific things about how the world works. And for, and for all those reasons, then I began getting more on into science, but it definitely starts with teachers. And where did you go then? You studied science. Then, well, I was going to do medicine, actually. Yeah. And I applied to do medicine. And I got enough points, although there weren't points in those days, weren't too old. Right? You had to get three A's in your leaving, right? Yeah. Uh, I did the mocks, got enough to do medicine, right? Yeah. My mother was delighted. And then I changed my mind on the CIO and went for science instead. <laughs> and then much to her annoyance. Right, guys. <laughs> and then I didn't get the points because I didn't bother then. You know, I got five B's in the leaving in the oh. end. I kind of took the foot off the pedal a bit, okay. you know. And then I went and did science and I, I wanted to do science. So you almost calibrated definite. your own e- effort level. Kind of. Yeah, we're smart, you see. Right. You've got, you got to use your, your skills. eased off on the pedal, yeah. I, I, looking back on it, that may mm. be the reason, yeah. yeah. And then I got into science in Trinity and then I ended up doing biochemistry. The reason being, uh, the chemistry of life intrigued me. Can we explain living things through chemicals? And indeed we can't. DNA is, after all, a chemical. Mm. Like we're, You and me talking, we're effectively two bags of chemicals That's interacting, right. really. You know? And, and that got my imagination. Empty, isn't that right? Mostly empty. We're two, mostly fresh air. Well, two-thirds water. We're two-thirds water. For a start, yes. But so, mostly not there, even. Mostly not there, yeah, yeah. And then when I began to learn about the chemistry of life, that really got me. I don't, for some reason, it's hard to explain, right? I, I, I can't quite say why it floated my boat at the time. I read a great book when I was like 19 then, Asimov's Guide to Science. Isaac Asimov. Never forget it. And that really got me again. Oh, this is fantastic stuff, you know, reading all about the history of biology and chemistry and physics, you know. And then gradually then I got into my final year and I still didn't know I was going to do that. I was by no means on a path to be a scientist at that stage, really, mm. you know. Uh, and then I did my first research. 
my first research project. All degrees always involve some kind of dissertation. If, you, like? if you're doing science, you do a research project for the first time in a lab, and it was about Crohn's disease. Yeah. And that got me. I went, oh, that's that's very a interesting. Horrible Here's a hor- And in those days, Mark, this is 1984. Yeah. There was nothing for Crohn's. Right. It was vicious. It's still very People died. Well, well it, it's a bit better. It's got slightly better since then, thankfully. There's a couple of new medicines that work a bit, but we need to do better. If, if Crohn's for people who don't know out there and Dr. Rosenstock speaking here of course I know nothing about it either but I, I, I know I've heard of a few people who suffer yeah. from it and um, I think it's something to do with the digestive That's system right. it can lead to very bad bowel problems yep. um, problems going to the toilet yep. uh, be very embarrassing very painful very nasty nasty yep. Um, yep. people have died from it well when I began my research there was a high mortality rate even then people in their 30s were dying of this disease high dose steroids were shown to work and that was one of the first anti-inflammatory medicines because as you say Mark, Crohn's is an inflammatory disease of the digestive system and for some reason your immune system decides I'll go into the gut and I'll beat the crap out of it and cause inflammation mm. now inflammation happens after an infection if you cut yourself that's the immune system for, for good reasons is causing inflammation there you know, this is inflammation going bad or we use the word rogue actually as the, the inflammatory system goes rogue and steroids work a bit you know and one or two other drugs worked but then a big breakthrough happened in the late 80s and I was part of this now there was thousands of us in this area right my PhD was about things called cytokines now cytokines are messenger molecules made by the immune system to cause inflammation and two of them are found overproduced in Crohn's you make too much of them and lo and behold drug companies go after those cytokines and that's the new therapies. There's one called TNF, for instance. Now, these drugs will work in maybe one in three and they'll slow down the disease process, which is good for the one in three. But we'd love to get the all, all three out of three to respond, wouldn't we? You know? And am I right in saying you, one of your areas of, of expertise is inflammation? That's right. And inflammation yeah. really, as I've grown up through life and talked to doctors about any affliction I've had, small or whatever, it's all about, you know, it's all, it's all about inflammation. Yeah. People go the pain I'm suffering, any pain people are suffering, is generally about inflammation. It is. Back pain, knee pain, uh, elbow pain. It's all inflammation. So, yeah. so talk to me a bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, the, re- the reason being it's good for you. We evolved to have an inflammatory response. So, for example, if I bang you on the elbow with a hammer, right, mm. that's going to injure your tissue, right? Mm. It's going to open the skin. There's mm. a risk of bacteria. Mm. You mobilize the immune system mm. to go into that tissue to fight the germ mm. and repair the tissue. Mm. Inflammation involves blood, blood vessels opening up mm. And that's why it gets red. Mm. In fact, in the, it was a, a, a Greek physician, Celsus, defined the four signs of inflammation. And redness is one. Swelling is happening because the immune system leaves the bloodstream, mm-hmm. brings a bit of plasma with it, and now the tissue begins to swell up mm. here. You know? Pain, very important part of inflammation, to stop you using yes, the banged elbow. and stop you. You hold on yes, to it and you yes. keep it away Protect. from it. That's the third thing. And the fourth is heat. The temperature goes up because the blood is rushing in, you see. Right. And they're the four signs. So it's a protective mechanism. It's protective. And, and, and all the redness and swelling is about the immune system going in mm. to fight the germ. And then the second, and it's got good weapons for that, by the way, Mario. It's got little atom bombs going off, yeah. right? right? And then it can bring in the repair guys and yeah. they bang a few nails in and fix it and yeah. there's a scar formed yeah. in the end. Now, all the exact same thing is happening in Crohn's disease, except there's no infection. The same troops are going into your gut, releasing the atom bombs 
causing all the inflammation and it's unrelenting, ah. unresolving. And therefore, it's no surprise anywhere you see injury in the body and it can be backache, as you say, it can be a headache, that's mm. inflammation, you know, and it's trying to repair things. Mm. The trouble is you get this strange, and we still don't know why, by the way, mm. uh, why it goes off kilter and why it begins to attack our own tissues is the still big unanswered question. Mm. And I've spent 35 years myself and men, thousands of us have, what's happening in Crohn's? One day you're watching the telly, next thing you're having diarrhoea in the toilet mm. and it's Crohn's. No idea why that's same with rheumatoid. Your joints are out of control. Mm. Alzheimer's, that's inflammatory. Mm. Motor neuron disease. Mm. The brain is being attacked now. And we'd love to know why. Is Parkinson's part of that? Absolutely. They're all, in fact, amazingly. This is, this is me probably overreaching because cool. it's my enthusiasm. Most diseases involve inflammation of some kind. Yeah. The reason being it's your own body with its own internal weapons now going off kilter. A, a good analogy is it's a civil war going on instead Circular of a regular war. Squad. It's, a, it's that kind it's of thing. Collateral damage it's, on colla- it's collateral damage. And the weapons have to friendly be... Friendly fire. It is, it is exactly. Oh, well, it's a good one. Precisely. It is friendly fire. Precisely. And the weapons have to be powerful to kill a virus, don't they? Yeah. You know? And now they turn on your own tissues. Right. That, now, you see the way you do that there when you were explaining something to me there. You went, no, Mario, you see the atom bombs there go off. And, like, no, sorry. and, and, and it's like you, you immediately re- um, re- revert to almost... Um, teacher mode. Oh yes, yeah. but, but 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 no, it's helpful teacher mode, right? But so you've kind of turned into this person in this country where there's like there's a there's one in America. There's Neil deGrasse Tyson, okay, and he's that brilliant black physicist. Um, but they get him on talk shows because he can make black holes interesting, like Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah, that's right, right. And then in 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 the United Kingdom, they have. Brian Cox, who wonders at the marvels of the universe and how, and he was into music as well. He, was. he like, you know, didn't he sing that song? Do you read? I am the Irish Brian Cox. Tony Blair's song, and he brought Labour into power, the glorious cosmology of the superstar, the global black hole that was Tony Blair. So, and then, and then you're sort of like Ireland's version of that, right? Well, you're very kind to say that. Well, that's the best. It's, it's not. It's it's not being kind. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 just sort of it's just sort of it is that are you because if I was being if I was being slightly if I was being slightly um, uh, caustic or, or 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 critical of you not critical but but slagging you yeah. I'd go he Jesus there's nothing he doesn't say he says no to nothing he's always on it <laughs> that was the case he's on COVID. spin <laughs> well yeah he's on spin he's on news talk with Pat he's on Morning Ireland he's on here there and everywhere yeah. so. What? Be honest with me and go. Did you like that attention, or were you drawn mainly by, um, were you drawn mainly by a mission to help, or actually that other thing I pointed out a minute ago, that kind of performer in you to teach, almost be the kind of Robin yeah. Williams, almost of. Well, it wasn't the money. Dead was it? Society. It wasn't the money. Well, obviously not. I've, <laughs> not seen, RTA, I've, no, I've seen the guest. The guest. <laughs> Guess, yes. um, well, I see it as a, as, as, a, as a continuum. I began teaching in university. That's when it begins for me. You know? And you try giving a lecture to 318-year-olds and I give the first biology lectures to yeah. that group and it's not easy, let's face it. Yeah. And I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Just communicating to that yeah. group. Or and, trying to win them. And they're like any audience, really. You know? And I began doing that. That was the starting point for me. The second thing was the science gallery, as you may remember, Mario. That, that came along in Trinity. It was a big success there. I was part of that. A guy called Mike Coey got it going. I was on their board. And I began doing more public stuff with the science gallery. And I go, oh, this is quite nice, you know. And then I realised... You know, I'm enjoying it as well, you know. But I see I see it as teaching all the way through, really, you know, and trying trying to convey 
my enthusiasm for science. But it could be anything, actually. You know, but I'm it trying could, to get to it could be the Beatles. You know, yeah, my other big exactly. passion. Um, but I do. Th- but, but you like. But 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 what I'm trying to get at is uh, uh, you 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 do like that feeling of the eyes being on you. I and cert- in a sense performing or being performative I like communicating actually mm. is probably the better word for yeah. it in a sense and if I give a good lecture and I feel I've connected with the audience with this information <laughs> oh, that's quite satisfying Do you mean like Father Ted after he gave the good mass <laughs> Yeah exactly, fucking good nailed that's, it that's, exact, that's exactly it it's exactly like Father Ted and I see myself as a Baptist minister by the way, on, the, on the pulpit for science in a way you wow. know but it is it is unusual I mean in a sense because my day job is to do research remember I'm 90% of my time even though I seem to be in the so media a lot So 90% of your time the is spent program. being quiet Almost. Being co- almost, yeah, except shouting at my own laugh. Yeah. Uh, just but this. is it a solitary, a semi-solitary or, um, or quiet? Is it fair, fair to say quiet? I, lab, labs are fantastically active places, by the way. There's 15 people in my lab at the moment and they're all shouting and talking and okay. all the rest of it. And it does involve a lot of communication because you sit down to discuss experiments or you criticise data or the conferences I go to are quite similar, you know. And I'm giving a talk and then you're getting feedback off people. So it is quite, it's quite social in a way. It's not, it's not like um, you're at the bottom of your garden in your shed with a hammer banging into something on your own kind of thing. That's mm. not the way science really is. But you did, you did so much, many appearances during COVID. They kept asking. That, that was the main yeah. thing. And that's because it became apparent that you were a good communicator. And it was hard to say no because I knew when it kicked off this is a very important time for science and the audience as you might call it or the public are massively hungry for knowledge in this area. Never before was it, was ever anything I've ever done seen such such attention for obvious reasons. You know, Every time I was with Pat or wherever oh, the endless questions coming in. You know, Endless emails, endless handwritten letters just people worried. The main reason being fear. And because I'm an immunologist, now is my time to, you know, step up, I suppose, and play my role in this disaster we were all in the middle of. I saw, I saw that, and that sounds very honourable, but I saw that as an important uh, consequence of my own training and my own knowledge. And then they kept asking. And after a while, I, I began to quote one of my favourite Travelling Wilburys songs, Overexposed, Commercialised. Yeah. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah. Overexposed, Commercialised. <laughs> yeah, that was in my Adam mind. Even care. Yeah, and because the trouble, the, the worst thing for me would have been, there's that, there's that guy again, and they don't listen. The whole reason is to commute, is to get the information out, you know. So that was a really important thing to remember. If you overdo it, <laughs> strange as it may seem, I had to say no to several things as well, you know. Yeah. So it was a tricky one. And, and, and I must say, uh, and this is not to blow your trumpet, but one of the better, um, one of the best kind of places, fonts of information on this was yourself and Pat Kenny. And the reason for that is because Kenny, not only being a, an expert broadcaster and to use the word forensic would be would be the right word to use. Also, huge interest in chemistry himself yeah. and chemical engineering and, and 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 science in general, and a forensic mind that was able to uh, knew how to elucidate, elicit the best from you. Exactly, and and, and I really work with Pat. I, mean, I was with Pat since twenty thirteen, remember, but nobody noticed particularly. You know, is um, that right? Yeah, I, I was, I was in his first week in news talk. We did the tenth anniversary. That. You know, I, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I only thought you were COVID. Yeah, and, and some, some would say to me, "Oh, I loved you before COVID." This kind of thing, you know, not many. <laughs> loved you early, before COVID. Don't play any of your early stuff. stuff. That's right. Just do it. I say, well, thanks for listening. You know, uh, but didn't bother. My dear Mary, it didn't bother me in the least. I was on every week with Pat discussing an interesting scientific topic and, and he was great because he was he was easy with it's easy with Pat because you say he's very literate scientifically mm. he, he did a master's in Georgia Tech in chemical engineering you know mm. so in other words it was never difficult and, and we kind of hit it off as well which was quite nice as soon as COVID hit he says he's at home by the way 
from his house I'm coming into News Talk mm. on my own because mm. in those days there was nobody allowed in we, yes. I was allowed in for the communication thing you see. Yes. and he said to me let's go three days a week <laughs> I said what? <laughs> let's go steady Luke I said, yeah, well, well you did carry I know let's take this to the next you had level me carrying Pat around the studio mm. didn't you? <laughs> well you see that's a sketch Ed, that's a sketch I did as well right so uh, basically Luke and Pat the Covid was coming to an end and uh, I started well I'm going to be very very sorry to see the back of Luke O'Neill because and then the song starts I've had the time of my life and eventually Luke and Pat jump into each other's arms and he carries him around I've had oh go on Pat Pat the data's telling me you're going to let me fall into your arms you see oh yes Luke let's go steady let's go steady steady yeah. Luke and that was uh, spot on right because it was, it was almost like that there's no question you know yeah, absolutely. All right. Now, do you know why, what, what, since we're there, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this piece. I was going to do it later. I'm going to use this piece to do, um, talk about the, the, the just do, run through the COVID thing, right? Now, this is an interrogation yeah. and it's not a lecture either because we've heard it all before. So yeah. it's more of like where we stand now. Yep. I'm going to start with a big question. And the big question is the word science. And this is what you are. And one of the, you, you, you need to nurse me out of this because one of the issues I had with the stuff that was coming from, let's say, the centre, and we call the centre government and immunologists and the 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 Nefet and uh, the, the the universities, was the credo: let us let's follow science, follow the science, and and this kind of started to worry me a little bit because um, when you see somebody saying let's follow this, right, it's very much a kind of a religious uh, affirmation. Um, and religion isn't science it's fate and fate isn't science yeah. and so when somebody says you've got to follow the science I'm thinking Jim Jones and I'm thinking you know swallow the Kool-Aid here yeah. and I'm thinking the science says swallow that dude and so science for me as I wouldn't have to be a scientist to know that science for me means question the science yeah. not follow the science so Mike I suppose my basic question to you is how did we treat this whole p- issue of following the science when yeah. you as a scientist must know it's integral to science to question the it science? It is, yeah. Well, the, there was a bit of a catchphrase that began being used, follow the science, you know, and I wouldn't necessarily be fully in favour of the notion either. You're quite right. But eventually science has to say something, you see, about a problem and say this, this is the evidence at the moment to support X, whatever X might be. And if that evidence said, here's a very safe, effective vaccine, right? And here's the evidence to back that up, you can't deny that necessarily and you do follow that data in a way. It's more like following data as much as anything else. And then you decide on something based on that, you know. So the follow notion, you're right, it's a bit of an unfortunate phrase, I think. And to be a scientist is absolutely to be sceptical the whole time. And in fact, when you write a scientific paper, this is where the clash with the media stuff comes in, in a sense. If I write a scientific paper, I'll say the evidence supports the following. I don't say this is the situation because I'll be kicked by my fellow scientists. The trouble is, Mrs. Murphy in her kitchen doesn't want to hear that necessarily. They want to get a more definitive kind of thing. And eventually you're forced or, you know... You're, sen- you're saying you're forced in a sense to, be- to go more tabloid. Sometimes, yeah, to go more tabloid. And especially in an emergency. Now, now in the COVID situation, the problem with following the science was we had incomplete data a lot of the time. Right? We didn't have the full data set, right? And it was more of a caution then, just in case. If we don't do this, there could be trouble. So therefore we should do this based on the data we've got. That, that was more the nuance in terms of following science. It wasn't as... Nothing, nothing's ever 100 percent certain. Gravity probably is, isn't it? I think you know, there are certain scientific facts that nobody can deny. Oh, unless um, you're Plato. 
Unless you're played on. If you deviate into the <laughs> philosophical world and go, is this actually there? Well, that's the next question. Are we in the Matrix? Is yeah. The <laughs> um, no, that's true. But there, there are there are certainly laws. They call them laws. That's why they came up with these so-called laws because they're they're true as much as, as far as we can tell. You know, um, these laws are true. So you can get to a situation in science where something is pretty definitive. But COVID, very complicated. We it's a brand new virus. Didn't really know what, how it works. Didn't know the component parts in full detail. Didn't know enough about the immune system, how it reacts to this virus either. You know? Do we this know is, a lot more about it now? Days. Oh, yeah, we do. Are, are the, we still learning about it? Well, we're always learning. We're still learning about the flu even. You know, it never stops in a sense. You know? But certainly uh, within about six months with this, it was quite incredible. Lots of scientists began working on it for the start and begin generating, including my own lab, by the way. My lab then switches into COVID. Uh, three people in my lab start working on it. And this knowledge begins to accumulate and then we learn an awful lot about it, which is great. And it's great for future pandemics, for instance. You know? And then, of course, the big thing was the RNA vaccines were tested and they turned out to be great. Now, now there was evidence they mightn't be before that. There was lots of question marks around them. But then these trials are run. You've got to follow the scientific method eventually. Yes. And get data from it and then decide what that data means is the way to think of it. That the follow the science thing, that, that was kind of a political thing, I think, right in a sense. Because like if you're if you're debating something in the Doyle and you give your side and I give mine, if I've got scientific evidence to back up what I'm saying, I might say follow the science, you know, as opposed to what yeah. you're saying. And that's what made science appealing to me early on, by the way. It is backed up by data. Mm. Whereas other things aren't necessarily just based on a opinion. And science ultimately shouldn't be about opinion. It should be definitive. Good. Okay, I get the answer to that. Can I ask a, a couple of more provocative questions? Yeah. When somebody says, I, and I've heard your answer, so when somebody says follow the science and science is backed or lobbied or in- incentivized or blackmailed or bribed or just sheer given money by the most powerful corporations in the world, do you not, could you not be forgiven for going, I'm following the thing that's being paid for by lobby groups with loads of cash. <laughs> of course you can. Yeah, absolutely. And where do we where, 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 yeah, where, yeah. assuage my fears? The only way to assuage those fears is to talk about regulation, remember. So if a big drug company produces a vaccine and says, this is a fantastic vaccine and, and I've funded all these labs to work on that vaccine and get the evidence to back it up and all that. What you've said there, some people might say that. I don't believe that because big farmers like big oil or big tobacco or whatever, they put them all together. So therefore, you need the regulators to look at what's happening there, look at the data, dig in deep, the FDA and the EMA in Europe. It's their job, remember, to look at all that stuff and then decide, will they let a given drug onto the market based on what they're seeing, you know? And they were invented for that reason, by the way, because there were plenty of snake oil salesmen 100 years ago, you know, for example, saying this will cure your ailment or whatever. So the FDA gets set up to make sure that that's checked very, very carefully. And that's all we can hope for is to regulate that risk of vested interests or lobbying and so on rather than the science supporting it you see. The trouble is um, tobacco is the most egregious example of this remember because they were funding loads of research to say tobacco wasn't dangerous and it quite clearly is you know and that went on for a good 20-30 years remember so Now the same is happening with the environmental lobby Similar the trouble is this is the bit that In fact the same people are working for the environmental uh, lobbies that's worked the for the tobacco industry lobbies. Yeah. the exact same it's a lot of the same people yeah and it's amazing yeah I know this, 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 this is the because strange world their expertise world. was so brilliant so brilliant yeah, yeah to delay all that the PR expertise and, and tobacco kept getting sold for a long time after there was evidence it was very damaging to your health you yeah. know so in, in an ideal world you'd like everybody to be honest wouldn't you and say look 
I'll do experiments. I will produce data and I will come to a conclusion and this is true. And then we do that, you know. But it's much more complex, especially when big business gets involved and other various vested interests get involved in the whole thing, you know. And that's why in my own case, of course, I have worked with drug companies, remember, to develop anti-inflammatories. Not, not vaccines, I hasten to add. I have to work with companies because they're the ones who do the trials. They're the ones who make the drugs, you know. It'd, it'd be good if Trinity could be a commodore company, wouldn't it? But it's too expensive. You know, it's a very complicated system to get that through, you see. Mm. And therefore, I've worked with companies over the years. And again, I'm depending on the regulators as well, remember, to make sure everything is above board. My job is to do the experiments yeah. and, and, and get data. And who regulates the regulators? Well, that's the next question, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Well, they are government appointed, are they? I remember they are. one so, regulator so there you have in it. Irish life who went, uh, Miriam said, Genuinely, Pat Neary, can you tell us that the banks are safe? It's what date is it today? It's November twelfth, two thousand and eight. Miriam, the banks are so well capitalized. It's untrue, Miriam. He was a regulator. I know. Nobody I know. Was, nobody I know. was regulating him or his moustache. No, that's very true. It's very true. <laughs> Who is the ultimate regulator, Mario, you and might wonder? Yes. Um, well, uh, I mean, can you ever even trust a regulator with a moustache? Well, that's the next ask. question. You know, I mean, they're covering that could up That could be an exclusion something. criterion. Question then. Can... I don't want you to go into necessarily big long answers of this, or even I'm not being facetious by asking the question. But if pharmaceutical companies benefit from people being sick, what incentives are there for people to be better? Ah, that's a complicated question, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> well, I suppose you have to take it the other way around and go, look, there's a terrible illness. It's called Alzheimer's disease. There's a desperate need for new medicines. It's up to drug companies to make medicines to treat Alzheimer's based on all this research, you know. And someone with Alzheimer's doesn't want to have that disease. And certainly the relatives who are supporting someone with Alzheimer's wants a treatment or to stop that disease, you know. So that's a different way to look at it, isn't it? Isn't it? You know? so, so you're definitely incentivized if you're sick. Aren't you? Not, not yet yeah, to have some sort of treatment. Let's put it that way. Mm. But did but did you know what I was asking you? I mean, did, 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 how can pharma truly be seen to be clean if they make the money yeah. from? from keeping people not cured but sick. Well, 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 that applies to all medicine, remember. There's always a strange mix of altruism and uh, financial aspects to medicine all through may, society. Maybe ask you a backwards question. And this, you'd have to be honest about this now. Um, I don't know if you can be honest given your position. But do you think there's cures for things out there that aren't being revealed because of uh, 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 avarice? No, I, I don't. I hope not. I'll tell you one thing for sure. If someone discovers a cure for these major diseases, they will immediately get that out there because it's very lucrative for them. Right. You know, and like current meds so you're for, saying that the, for Crohn's disease are making billions of dollars a year for drug companies. The treatments for Crohn's I mentioned earlier, you know, so the companies are massively incentivized then to get the drugs out there. Mm. And remember, if you the, the, the drug companies make money, of course they do, but it's a saving in the long run for a health service because someone hasn't been sick for fifty years. Correct. You okay. see, so it's that balance. I get that. And, and this is a sub part of it's, it's um, the economics of medicine is actually quite complicated in that sense. You know, health mm. economics as an area is a specialized area. Yeah. Now, how do drug companies justify a price? for a med that they could put on the market. Mm. They'll say, we've spent X on research, and mm. it's billions, by the way, mm. spent on research at risk because many things fail. And therefore, we're going to charge a price to get a return on our investment. Mm. And then secondly, we'll ultimately save the health service a huge amount. And the last thing to remember, what you always say to people, is many pension funds are invested in drug companies. So if they fail, many won't get their pensions when they retire. Right. It's part of the economic ecosystem, as far as I know. It's not my expertise, yeah. but, but there's all that going on in the okay. background. I'll ask you a, qu a question then, which is probably an unfair question to me to ask, because I don't. it's coming from an unfair position, which is I don't necessarily back myself, but I'll ask it on the basis that you're the person who can answer it. And that's um, it's slightly, a slightly conspiratorial question. And that would be, how come we came up 
we have no vaccine for the flu or the cold. Yeah. But we actually came up with three vaccines at the same time within weeks of each other for COVID-19. Party look. Let's start with that. You need a bit of luck in this business as well, remember? Uh, we have one for flu, by the way. There is a flu vaccine out there. And it works a bit. It may be 60% effective, which is not bad, you know? We, oh, sorry, the common cold, I think I was talking about. Oh, yeah, we don't, we don't have one for the cold. Yeah. You're right. But then the common... Guess what? One in five colds are caused by coronaviruses. Yeah. Four in five are caused by adenoviruses. And one reason is because people felt it wasn't that serious enough a condition to it. Again, getting back to the money thing, I suppose. You know, uh, Like, why would you get a motivation. vaccine for the common cold? Because it's yeah. a mild disease. Right? Okay, well, then let me reverse the question. Let's say the common cold was discovered to be an, a life ender. The yeah. common cold, suddenly. Yep. Uh, do you think then that the world's resources could be mobilised to try and find a vaccine against that? Definitely. Right. Definitely. And and the thing that happened with the vaccines is very simple in the end. The traditional way of making vaccines would have taken two, three, four years without doubt. The reason for this is to make them as tricky. Like, did you know the flu vaccine has grown in chicken eggs? You'd never have made three billion doses of that vaccine for COVID in chicken eggs, you know. And instead, they make the RNA molecule in the test tube, stick it in a fatty bag, and that's the vaccine. And then they test it. This is the important thing. Now, remember the woman who discovered the technology, Kathleen Carrico, who won the Nobel Prize this year, she was doing this stuff 20 years ago. So it wasn't as if it was overnight either. But finally, the emergency. The US government, Operation Warp Speed, gave Pfizer billions of dollars to help them develop this quickly because the Americans knew the only way this is medical mm. a public health response won't work in America because people won't wear masks or they won't not gather or whatever it is so the American government were pretty smart let's pay a drug company <laughs> please mm. it's like a war I think the analogy is like a war we're about to be killed invent me a new weapon quick would you to stop us being killed oh, Oppenheimer yeah. and, look, and, and you save hundreds of millions of lives That's, yeah. it's, it's equivalent Ultimately, in some uh, ways it's the equivalent of that you, know? you have to make those terrible Faustian you do and, and, and that choices. RNA vaccine it could have been less effective there could well have been some side effect in the early part because again not, not so many you know, when it was developed first it was in maybe a few hundred people. Well, know? yes, but as a scientist then, can you tell me, and and, and you see, this is the thing where I, 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 I fall into line because I believe that trust has to be placed somewhere and we have to have some trust in our fellow human beings, uh, especially if we have regulators around as well and if we trust the regulators of the regulators and we have to have trust in each other. So can you tell me that, um, to the best of your knowledge, that the, the side effects uh, in general were small and that they weren't, um, mass, massive amounts, massive amounts of deaths on on. Yeah, on, that's on, that's what the data tells us. Because yeah, because the conspiracy theorists will tell you more myocarditis. There he's dead again. Another kid, age nineteen, drops dead in. Borneo. Yeah, and now, in fairness, they're looking for them all over the world. Well, every single medical intervention has a side effect. You've got to start with that. Yep. Every single one. Aspirin, paracetamol that we all take, there is a death rate from those as well, remember. So every every possible medicine will have a side effect. So, of course, there's side effects. But the trouble is you're weighing up the benefit from the vaccine and the risk of that side effect is always a tricky thing to get the balance right. You know, If those vaccines were killing young men of heart attacks, they wouldn't have been approved. Now, clearly some men did get endocarditis. And they would have been discovered in the testing that had done. Well, Pfizer and Moderna were forced, if you like, by the regulator. They knew themselves 90,000 people in one of the trials. Huge number of people. The biggest ever, actually. Which statistically would be Exactly. And that was essential because it was a new technology, remember. Relatively new in terms of how many humans had had it. And therefore, the signal in the end was it was safe enough then to approve. And that's what the FDA did. But you're quite right, Mark. Some people still won't believe that. And they'll say they're making that data up or they're hiding data. 
creative, whatever it is. It's very hard to convince people. No, sometimes. no, no. I like asking these questions because, again, I had John Gibbons on before and I said to him before he came on, I let him prepare for it. I said, I'm going to ask you 10 of the most conspiracy theory questions about environment. Yeah. And I want you to come in and gently, one by one, pick, unpack them. Unpack them, yeah. You know, and so it was a very interesting um, exper- ex- ex- experience. Yeah. Can I ju- jump, jump um, um, topic? Extraterrestrial life. So extraterrestrial life. I'll, I'll, I'll posit the, the start for it. So when you were living in the 60s or 70s or 80s and you said UFO or ET or something, let's say, you know, um, you, you were put into the bracket of going, oh, your man says he was um, he was he was he was he was sucked up by the spaceship and they they, they did probes on him. He's fucking nuts. <laughs> right. Now, and I'll be honest with you, now the whole concept of extraterrestrial um, beings and the, the idea of other life uh, forms being out there is coming much, much, much more into the centre mainstream. In fact, I would say it occupies the centre of the it, mainstream, it, it, particularly since we've discovered with the new telescopes, the habitable planets, and then not only that, but the sheer vastness of the of the galaxies and how deep we've been looking to, to look into space. So I'll ask you a couple of questions. Do you believe um, um, that there is there are extraterrestrial beings out there? Do you believe if they are out there, what they might look like? Do you believe if they are out there and what they might look like, have they ever been here? Yes, to all three. For those really? Of well, my favourite movie is Paul. Do you ever see that movie? Nope. Paul, it's got Simon Pegg and it's about this alien called Paul. And he goes, bend over boys, probing time. <laughs> that's, that's the one thing we think of. Um, well, there has to be life somewhere else in the cosmos because life is simply a bag of chemicals. And the, 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 what's informing this discussion, Mario, actually is, could we, can we create life in a test tube ourselves with chemicals? Amazing as it may seem. And it goes back to an experiment in the 1950s when um, these two particular scientists decided to mix up the Miller and Urey, it's famous in my business. They mixed up some some very primitive chemicals that were in the early Earth, right? Let it bubble away for two or three days, came back into the lab, and a tiny creature. No, that's the joke. Um, <laughs> they found amino acids. Now, amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. That tells us it's just a chemical reaction. Let that test tube run for uh, 500 million years, which is what happened. With so the Earth was formed four and a half billion years ago. The first evidence of life is probably about four billion years. So 500 million years of, a, of bubbling and chemicals gave rise to the first cell. That's more than likely the case, right? More than likely. Now, there's so many planets out there, because the, and, and you link that to the astronomy now, and they've seen all these exoplanets in the Goldilocks zone, as it's called. There's a good chance one of those will have some life form on it. Now, the next question then is, it's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Will, it. will it be the same as life on Earth? Will it require water? It probably will, because water is a special solvent that molecules can function in, in terms of biological systems, for instance. So we're looking at a system, sorry, we're looking at a, a system where if there is life in other galaxies, uh, there's water might be one of the common yeah, so look water. Words, water isn't what you're saying. Water wouldn't be um, peculiar to Earth. That water no. would be out there. Yeah, and we've seen water all over. Yeah. There's plenty of water out there. You yeah, see, yeah. so that's that's the that would be the solvent for life, as we call it. Mm. You know, you're also looking for things called phospholipids, which form these membrane bags to concentrate everything to allow chemical reactions to happen. There's, this is this is called exobiology. There's divisions within NASA doing this kind of thing. One reason they go to Mars, of course, is to see if there's any evidence of life has been there. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're they're going to find life somewhere potentially signature for life. The only question is would would it have evolved Mm. into whatever the next level up is going Mm. to be and that seems very challenging statistically because the first cell arose through random chemistry but then two and a half billion years ago one cell crawled inside another and formed a special symbiotic relationship, right? Mm. The one that crawled inside became what I call mitochondria. 
Now, mitochondria are where you burn your glucose to, to generate this thing called ATP, this energy. And that was a big step forward. That meant that life now had a big battery strapped on the back of it. And that battery allowed for complex life to evolve. But that seemed to have been a very random event of the two cells getting there, getting together, you know. So it's hard to predict whether you'll see very complex life on other planets. But again, it wouldn't surprise me ultimately yeah, if absolutely. that's found as well. And the know? third question, have they been here? Well, there's a great joke. They are here and they're called Hungarians. <laughs> that was one famous joke that these Hungarians are here or they're called us. Oh, they're called, you never know. Yeah, yeah, we are really. the Well, the great the analogy is, let, let's say we're ants. Let's say ants are crawling on your boot. It wouldn't recognise you as a sentient being, would it? You know? No. If you see what I mean. So maybe aliens are among us. Who knows? And we're just like ants. We, don't, or, we wouldn't see I was them. talking about the idea that maybe we are the product of an exo-outside um, exogenous influence that came to yep. Earth by, by meteor. Well, there was the example, genius of Arthur asteroid. C. Clarke. Right, I remember that 2001 was a huge step forward in, in, in science fiction because it meant that aliens had allowed humans to evolve. In other words, it was aliens that triggered the plinth. Remember the big stone thing? The monolith. That, the, the monolith. That triggered us to develop. You know, that was a very interesting idea. And we've always had stories like that, the Nazca lines, you know, and the pyramids and all that kind That's of right, stuff. The big heads. Yeah, the big heads, exactly. Yeah. So it's hard to know. But um, I think that the time is, the, one issue is time. And physicists work on time, of course, you know, and billions of years. And let's say they did arrive here and they were, the dinosaurs were still here and they left again. You know, this kind of thing. You know? See, the timing of these things is hard to configure. Mm. And remember, if there is life on some other planet, by the time the radio signal reaches us, we'd have destroyed the Earth and we'd all be gone. Correct. <laughs> and we'd have missed it. You know? Yeah. This is a the other thing I would the thing is like, if you're being just adventurous about it is uh, they could they might have been here and we mightn't see them. So they might be microscopic. They might be nanos. Nano they might be tiny. nanos. They can be beneath the, the below the radar of us being able to see. Exactly. They might be on another wavelength. And, and your they idea might be hovering around all the time. It's called panspermia, as you might know. That that notion that life was seeded on Earth by a meteorite. Yeah. That's, that's a fascinating idea. Francis Crick, oh. who discovered the double helix, he was, he was one of the first to Watson say pan. He was he was one of the first to speculate maybe life got seeded on Earth from a, some of those meteorites you see have amino acids on them. <laughs> you know, some of those building blocks of life are found on meteorites. Yes. It's not life itself, but it's it's component parts. Mm. So you never know, maybe that initiation of uh, life was a meteorite hitting the earth. It's so random. The, what I love as well, Mario, on this story is if the dinosaurs hadn't been wiped out, we would not have evolved, yes. remember. That meteorite had to hit the earth to kill off the dinosaurs. Yes. And our ancestor, a tiny little mammal, yes. could now evolve yes. in the spaces left behind when the dinosaurs all died. And so who sent the meteorite? Was that an alien? <laughs> well, yeah. But the other thing was that like dinosaurs were around 65 million years ago and Previous to that, they'd been around a few hundred million years, whereas we've only been around a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand right. years. That's so we, we're we're just a speck. We're, so we're, to think that we have the arrogance to go, we are the sort of main guys on this planet. We're yeah. only brief custodians. Tiny. And the great analogy is, if life on Earth is twenty-four hours long, we arrive three minutes to midnight. Remember, that's, that's how, right. That's how close we are. Correct. To and, and one of my final questions would be to you. This would be one of the uh, one of the most fascinating things that any of us can ever think of. But do you have any? Because you, you would, because you're a scientist. Do you have any personal opinions on the concept of time travel? I'd love it if it was true. Barry, would that be brilliant if well, we could travel in time? That's your physical... You need Brian Cox for that one, right? Yeah. <laughs> He'd sing a song about it. Um, well, the, the great, what I like about time is E equals MC squared. That has time in it, remember. The speed of light is in that equation. So time is embedded in everything. It's in matter. It's, you know, it seems to just go in one direction. The notion of it going backwards seems to defy the laws of physics. But who knows? Maybe, maybe it's possible to go backwards. And when black holes were discovered, the whole body go through them 
and then and do you time think wormholes are a possibility or has it been I think the physicists if you ask the, the physicists about this they say anything's possible mm. and when they when they consider the enormity of the laws of physics and the enormity of the big bang they get close to saying there must be a god some of them because it's just so wacky you know it's just so Unlikely, you know, there has to be something behind it, you know. So you get you get into the realm of um, of philosophical thinking. There. Very good. Put, put on your headphones there for a second, because uh, just a couple of people on the line who want to talk to you there, Luke. Um, Osama Conkey's there on the oh, line. Say hello to him. Hi, Sam. How's it going? Hello there, Luke. Long time no hear. You're sounding great. Lovely sounding to hear your voice again. Heard you talking about the travelling Wilburys. Um, perhaps yourself, myself, Tony, um, PK could get together. I could book board gosh. Superb. We'll get the pandemics. Put the the band back together again. Well, if the Beatles can release a single, you know, why not the pandemics? If not now, why not then? (laughs) Now and then? Now and then. And I'd I'd love to be out front this time. You kind of stole my fucking limelight the last time, Luke. (laughs) Well, if I can remind you, you had me sewing a mask on Clareburn Live with a sewing machine. Remember that that famous... I remember. Great times. I got great great fans, a little little old lady, so they fell in love with me when they saw me operating a sewing machine so thanks Sam we were superstars back then Luke we were we were in our own minds anyway unfortunately it went downhill for me what happened I hit the crack cocaine oh no yeah it's not going great and how are you doing yeah well I lost a lot in gambling as well I lost the old farm shocking eight balls Terrible. Through the arm. And where are you now, Sam? Are you in rehab? Well, I wish I could be, but I was over at the sphere there. I saw you. I waved at you, but you walked right by me, you little prick. (laughs) Didn't see you. Oh, you said you didn't see me. (laughs) Felt like I had a virus. Probably did. Anyway, it's been nice knowing you. Nice knowing you, Sam. (laughs) Great. Uh... That's it. God bless him. <laughs> Very good. That's it. Um, yeah. uh, Luke O'Neill, an absolute pleasure meeting you. Um, I do I do um, register that thing you said about your teacher, um, your biology teacher. Gutty, was it? Gutty. Yeah. Yes. The reason I became um, interested in, in acting and performing was because of a teacher I had when I was 16 years of age. And um, he said, I did a play and he said... Um, I, he said, I think you should take this more seriously. And I remember from that very day, it was like, that completely changed my life. And you yeah. were totally right about that at that time in your life. I think it is, yeah. It's whatever your, it's, your it's mind is. My captain, my captain, my, oh, captain, my captain. Yeah. It's a moment, isn't Definitely, it? Definitely, yes. Yeah. That's very similar, yeah. It is. And so, uh, listen, thank you for coming in and sharing your enthusiasm. It really comes It really comes out of you. And um, and it's been a real pleasure of meeting you. I, I've never met you before, even though I apparently look exactly like you. We're the image. <laughs> it's like twins. Thank you. Thank you, thank Mario. You. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it. My thanks to Professor Luke O'Neill for coming in to see me and having a great chat. I really enjoyed his company. Uh, And my thanks, of course, to you, as always, for listening. I received loads of emails over the Christmas holidays and I've just settled down to try and um, start replying to most of them. Um, Thanks very much. It's mariorosenstock at gmail.com. If you want to get in touch with me personally, I read them all and get in touch and get back to nearly all of them. and you can catch me on Twitter as well. At um, GiftGrubMario is my handle. And just please tell one other person, if you like my podcast, about this podcast. Talk to you same time, same place next week, where I have a very interesting interview with Matt Cooper. Matt Cooper.